Welcome to the first debate of the 2024 presidential campaign live at Pfizer Forum in Milwaukee. This decline is not inevitable. It's a choice. We need to send Joe Biden back to his basement and reverse American decline. Joe Biden has weakened this country at home and abroad. Now is not the time for on-the-job training. We don't need to bring in a rookie. We don't need to bring in people without experience. Let us be honest as Republicans. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this. The climate change oh, agenda whoa, 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 whoa. is a That's hoax. Ridiculous. The climate change agenda is a hoax. And we have to declare independence for I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT standing up here. And the last person in one of these debates, Brett, who stood in the middle of the stage and said, What's a skinny guy with an odd last name doing up here was Barack Obama, and I'm afraid we're dealing with the same type of amateur standing stage tonight. I am unapologetically pro-life, not because the Republican Party tells me to be, but because my husband was adopted and I had trouble having both of my children, so I'm surrounded by blessings. When it comes to a federal ban, let's be honest with the American people and say it will take 60 Senate votes, it will take a majority of the House. So in order to do that, let's find consensus. To be honest with you, Nikki, you're my friend, but uh, consensus is the opposite of leadership. When the Supreme Court returned this question to the American people, they didn't just send it to the states only. It's not a states-only issue, it's a moral issue. Don't make women feel like they have to decide on this issue when you know we don't have 60 Senate votes in the House. 70% of the American people support legislation but to ban abortion of the after Senate a baby is capable not. of experiencing okay. pain. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Whether or not you believe that the criminal charges are right or wrong, the conduct is beneath the office of President of the United States. I chose the Constitution, and I always will. I had no right to overturn the election, and Kamala Harris will have no right to overturn the election when we beat them in 2024. Thank you, Vice President Pence. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Kondik. In this episode, we are discussing the first Republican presidential primary debate. Uh, And we want to really focus on how the debate, as well as Donald Trump's interview with Tucker Carlson, can be used as a starting point for making sense of what's happening in American politics and in the electorate. Um, I think, Kyle, I've been looking at a lot of data from survey research, from the various tracking polls. And by and large, it seems to me that the Republican Party is still Donald Trump's party. I think that's I think that's totally fair to say. And it, it was interesting in that, of course, these debates are always they're kind of like the tentpole events of the primary season. And yet the tentpole candidate wasn't actually there. And he also wasn't even as present in the conversation as I kind of thought he would be. I remember there was some reporting. I can't remember from who, but there was a suggestion that Fox was going to try to weave Trump in through playing video clips of him and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. th- that really didn't happen. Of course, there was some discussion of Trump's legal problems. 
But overall, it was, was this debate amongst all these candidates who were way behind Trump. And it was more about some of the disagreements among themselves, which I think is instructive and actually made for, I thought, a decent debate as far as these things go, whatever you think of them. But again, it is still Trump's party and he wasn't there and he's still the front runner. And you didn't really get any sense that something that happened during the debate would actually hurt him. Maybe there'll be some sort of lingering effect of just not showing up. But so, so that's a possibility. But, but, but again, it wouldn't necessarily even be because of anything that happened at the debate. It would just be because people would think, oh, well, he's ducking his competition or something like that. Yeah. So Chris Lasavita, um, who is with the Trump campaign, said 30 minutes into the debate that they made the right decision to not participate. <laughs> and there was this simultaneous interview with Tucker Carlson, but had over 70 million, quote unquote, views just 30 minutes into the debate. As of the time that we are recording, it's at over 175 million views. Now, that's of course, just the number of people who watched at least two seconds of the video with at least 50% of the video player in view on X, formerly Twitter, rather than the whole video. But it, there was also more significant engagement with the post. There's more than 170,000 reposts, over 575,000 likes as of the time that we are talking on Thursday morning. So Trump was able to draw and Tucker Carlson were able to draw a significant crowd. And Trump basically had a lot of leverage to just speak, say whatever he wanted in a rather calm, controlled setting than I think the other candidates did. I think it's also interesting looking at some of the surveys that went out before the debate that the majority of Republican primary voters did not want to hear the other candidates attack Trump. They wanted to hear them make a case for themselves as candidates. And I do think that that is largely what we saw in the debate last night, though though there was some discussion towards the end of Donald Trump. And I think across a range of polls that we've seen, again, Donald Trump is Republicans' first choice candidate. I also, there's a new Pew, there's a new Pew research survey out this week that looks at that asked survey respondents who had done the best job as president over the past 40 years. 40% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents answered Ronald Reagan. And just slightly fewer, 37%, say that Donald Trump has done the best job. I think in other surveys, we, we continue to see Republican voters, primary voters, believing by and large that the way that the state of the nation, that the way things are going, were better under Trump. And they also have the sentiment that he fights for people like them. Yeah. And that, that Reagan versus Trump thing I was thinking about in some of the exchanges from the debate, obviously Trump was not a part of it. Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy was, I would say, almost like the dominant candidate in the sense that like a lot of the action was focused on him. And, and his interactions with other candidates and his conflicts. And I think that his campaign has been very much focused on just like generating a lot of attention for someone who is a total newcomer to politics. And from that perspective, I think the debate was a success for him. But there was this exchange between him and Mike Pence. And Pence really, Ramaswamy really seemed to get under Pence's skin that there was this, this idea like, oh, I'm the former vice president. Pence does really have a lo pretty long resume in politics former House member, governor, vice president, et cetera. 
is who's this guy up here? This kid basically talking back to me or whatever. But Pence really sounded, you talk about the sort of Reagan versus Trump thing. Pence really sounded like Reagan. Again, Reagan's a way more talented or was a much more talented speaker and politician, I think, than Mike Pence. But like Pence is very much like the sort of Reagan message was essentially like the American people are great. If only government would get out of the way, everything would be great. And so that, that the, the message, I feel like Pence basically repeated that. Ramaswamy was much more, I think, dark about some of the sort of societal problems that we have. And again, he was, was certainly an anti-government candidate, critical of the bureaucracy and all that. But just in, in some of the, the tone, it's more like Trump. And of course, people have said that Ramaswamy is very much like a sort of a Trump defender in, in that, in that uh, mold. And frankly, I think Ramaswamy is closer to where the party actually is right now than Pence. And it, I wouldn't be shocked at all if Ramaswamy got a bump out of this just because he was the most sort of populist Trump-like candidate on, on the stage. And I think there's some appetite for that. And also he's, he's getting some exposure that he probably hasn't gotten yet, even though, again, he's been pretty, very present in this, uh, in this, in this campaign. But it's almost, again, that Pew poll, it's like Reagan, Trump, both remembered pretty fondly by Republican voters. But I think where Trump is closer to where the actual party is and, and, and those exchanges to me between Pence and Ramaswamy kind of help clarify it. So that actually thought that was the most interesting part of the debate was the interaction between the two of them. I agree. One more quick thing on that Pew survey. It was interesting to me that actually more Democrats remembered Reagan fondly. It's just one percentage point, but more Democrats remembered Reagan fondly than they do Joe Biden currently. It was like 8% for Reagan among Democrats and 7% for Joe Biden. So I thought that kind of gets it Another element that's happening in our politics right now that Alan Abramowitz wrote about for the Crystal Ball this week, um, which is the way in which negative partisanship, the way in which partisans are casting a vote against a, a the other party's candidate rather than for their candidate. Yeah, that's right. I think it explains both parts. The story was framed around Republican loyalty to Trump, but you could also frame it around Democratic loyalty to Biden, too, which is that. Trump is the one who's more under fire right now. His, the numbers of some of the polling cited in there, are, you could argue it's a little bit weaker for Trump than Biden in terms of party, in terms of perceptions within his, own, within his own party. But the bottom line is we should expect that these partisans basically to come home for whoever their party nominee is. And that gets at something else that happened in the debate, which was that most of the people, or I think six of the eight candidates on the stage suggested that they would support Trump, even if he was, he actually was convicted of something and was the nominee and was convicted of something prior to, prior to the November 2024 election. And, and again, that's, I understand that in a, in a time of negative partisanship and also that even having a, a flawed damaged Republican as president is better for Republicans than having, than having any Democrat. I think it's just more about who, which party has control as opposed to necessarily who that person is and their own, um, personal attributes. Although a lot of Republicans like a lot of Trump's uh, personal attributes, even though he's there's uh, there is some softness in some of the recent polling. Trump's uh, something like a, maybe a quarter, or a little bit more of Republicans that are expressing an unfavorable view of Trump. But you'd still expect those folks to come home for the most part and support him if he got nominated. Yeah. So a couple of things related to this, we have seen a rally effect among especially Republican primary voters of the indictments that include 91 counts against the former president. But there's something like three quarters of Trump voters, according to the new CBS survey that came out over the weekend, 
Trump voters who show support for his legal troubles. So so that's actually working. And I think one of the biggest things to note there, one, again, that voters aren't necessarily receptive to criticism of Trump. But the other issue is that a lot of them just believe that this is politically motivated and don't believe in the charges. And so he's actually kind of seen, we've talked in the past on Politics is Everything, about the costs that the former president's going to face in the general electorate, but he's not necessarily facing those costs among Republican primary voters. Yeah, look, I think that the arguments that Trump has made against his prosecutions are are persuasive arguments to a lot of Republicans who basically are inclined to believe what he says about 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 the system, but the system at large and being the victim of Democratic prosecutors and the Democratic Justice Department and that sort of thing. I would argue a fair-minded evaluation is that whether he gets convicted or not, that Trump also did things that merited this kind of scrutiny. And again, reasonable people can disagree as to whether the indictment should have happened or which indictment should have happened or that sort of thing. But it's almost like by Trump pushing the boundaries so much, he engendered this. And this is, I think, a, a big story of just Trump as a national figure now going on, I guess it's eight years now since 2015 that he he pushes boundaries and it generates a disproportionate response from his enemies. And that almost helps him prove his own point about how the system is so biased against him. And so it's this sort of self-reinforcing dynamic where it's just it's politically pretty, pretty effective, at least in terms of maintaining support within your own party. Just as a sort of something we have to mention, not related to Trump necessarily, here we are talking about this debate and the person who seemed like the strongest challenger to Trump, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, we haven't even mentioned him yet. No. It was not, it was fine. To me, he kind of always comes across as a little mechanical. I thought specifically at the, at the start of the debate, I thought, he, again, that's just the word that sort of comes to mind. I thought he took settled down as things went along, but he was not the focus. And No, he certainly you know, wasn't. When, when yet he's kind of nominally in second place, but you, you almost wonder if he may get eclipsed at some point. So I, I just, there's been a decline for him. And, and again, I don't necessarily think he hurt himself, but I think he was in the position of he needs to, basically consolidate all the non-Trump support and start pushing some of these other candidates out. I don't, that doesn't seem like it's going to be a likely result, at least from this first debate. No, to me, and I've seen a number of analyses supporting this, but Ramaswamy clearly dominated in terms of time and attention relative to what was expected, I think, going into the debate. I think, as you mentioned, he clearly was a stand in a lot of ways for Donald Trump and was the most Trumpian candidate. We also had a question from Twitter that I thought we should address. If they would support Trump as their party's choice, why are they running against him? I I think it's really important to think about who the candidates at the debate were speaking to. Who was their audience? Nate Cohn at The New York Times last week put out a typology of Republican voters that I think is really helpful to map the what the candidate said onto the various facets of the Republican Party of the different typologies, because I think it helps us better understand that the Republican Party is not a monolith, even though Donald Trump has 37 percent or so of loyal Republican voters, about 14 percent of the party is the moderate establishment. These are highly educated, affluent, socially moderate or even liberal, often outright never Trump. And I really think that's sort of Chris Christie's crowd. We haven't mentioned him yet, but I think we heard a lot of echoes from his discussion. He was clear, he clearly came out swinging against Donald Trump. 
He spoke about the important role of government. And so there were some displays between him and Ramaswamy about between the pro-government, anti-government wings of the party. Nate Cohn also had the traditional conservatives making up about 26 percent of the party. And these are more old-fashioned economic and social conservatives who oppose abortion, prefer corporate tax cuts. They don't love Donald Trump, but they still do support him. I think we saw Mike Pence really trying to reach this element of the Republican Party. I was kind of, he was very careful in terms of discussing his role in the events of January 6, uh, 2021, and very clearly stating that he chose to uphold the Constitution and put the Constitution before a person. But we also heard him talk about the Trump-Pence years and running on that record of his time in office. There's a third voter typology of Republicans, the right wing. These are the Fox News, Newsmax watchers. They are disproportionately evangelical, and they believe that the United States is on the brink of catastrophe. And as I think you referenced earlier in our discussion, Ramaswamy clearly painting a very dark view of the country. I think this right wing base of of the Republican Party was clearly who both Ramaswamy and DeSantis were trying to reach. Another element is the blue-collar populace. These are sort of economic populace who are who hold deeply conservative views on race and immigration. Again, I, I think we saw both Ramaswamy and DeSantis trying to reach this populist base of the party. There, an another category are the libertarian conservatives. These are disproportionately Western, Midwestern conservatives who value small government, but are relatively socially moderate and isolationist and are on the lower end of Trump support compared with other groups. They make up about 14% of the party. And I think we really saw both Doug Burgum and Asa Hutchinson competing for this sliver of, or trying to, as, as being able to reach this element of the Republican party. And then finally, there's the newcomers who are younger, more diverse, and moderate. They're, they tend to be more disaffected voters like Democrats, but they dislike the woke left even less. And I think if there was any element of the Republican Party that Nikki Haley might appeal to, it, it might be these. So that was an interesting bit of survey info. But I think the telling thing was that Trump was doing perfectly fine with all of those groups, basically. Granted, he's got to get a huge lead nationally in that poll, just like he has in others. And also, you think about these various candidates trying to like unify these different groups, or at least try to get enough support from all of them to defeat Trump and to finish ahead of him in the primary. And to your point, they all kind of appeal to some of the groups, but maybe not all of them, whereas Trump has more universal appeal within the party. One of the things I often look at is just the college people who have a four-year degree versus those who don't, both nationally, or both in the general electorate and with the, with the Republican primary electorate. And Trump has generally been a lot weaker with the college group, but even in some of these polls where Trump is leading by a lot, he's still perfectly competitive with the college group and like wiping the floor with the non-college group. That's a pretty good place to be for him. And who can, again, who can get enough support from those various pieces? And it's, I think, one of the criticisms of DeSantis is he's fallen off or his support is eroded from where he was six months ago, is that he did go, he tried to basically run to Trump's right. And in so doing, he probably alienated some of the folks who don't really like Trump, but, but maybe find DeSantis now to be basically too right wing. Or so, so it's such a challenge for these candidates to navigate these differences in the party. And to the, the question from Twitter, 
ultimately, I mean, I do think that these candidates have struggled to articulate like why they should be chosen ahead of Trump. Part of it is that I think they believe probably rightly that if they attack Trump, they're going to be hurt more than he's hurt by their own attacks. But then that also says, well, what does that say about their own position within the party compared to Trump? And it's, well, they're in a fairly weak position. All of them are, which is the whole reason why it's possible that this debate basically was just like a sideshow to, 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 to Trump just dominating this primary. So, and again, you expect these parties to come together at the end. It's just pretty hard for a Republican politician to cross over and support a Democrat for president, vice versa. And so you, you would expect the party to come together, even though Trump has these liabilities that you might think would inhibit that, but it just hasn't happened. Related to your comment about this being a sideshow, I think a, a big talking point we're seeing circulate in the aftermath is like this was an audition to be vice president. And I actually kind of disagree with that take specifically because, but I, I'm not sure that Donald Trump is looking at any of those people on stage as a potential vice presidential candidate. What are your thoughts? I agree with you. And in fact, there's been a lot of reporting that suggested that Trump is maybe likelier to consider a woman as his running mate. And the, the only woman on the stage is Nikki Haley. And I kind of wonder if maybe too many bridges have been burned there for her to be chosen. I think she would be a pretty logical selection, but there, there might be some others. But I don't necessarily know what any of those candidates on the stage would add for Trump. He needs to think about what kind of vice president would be a real asset for him. I don't necessarily know who that person is, but I didn't really think so. What would Ramaswamy really add for Trump? I just, I don't, I just don't really see it. And also, let's think about it this way. Sometimes when candidates are chosen, it's because maybe they like did, did something in the, in the primary. Like Brick Hume was on Fox before the debate last night, and he was talking about how George H.W. Bush had this sort of surprisingly good showing in Iowa in 1980, and Reagan kind of, kind of basically blew it at the start of the primary. And then Reagan, of course, recovered and ended up picking Bush's running mate. And Hume noted that Bush probably earned his selection by his early success in the Republican primary that year. But if, in fact, Trump dominates his primary, then none of these other candidates are probably going to look good coming out of it. Now, I guess it's also fair to say Kamala Harris was basically a bust in 2020, and she, she still got selected by, by Joe Biden. So that's not everything. But Harris, I think, also added something to the ticket. Again, I just don't necessarily see that with these other, these other, other candidates. So I, that's a long-winded way of me saying I agree with you that I don't really view this as a vice presidential audition. Or if these candidates are viewing it that way, I think they're probably likely to be disappointed. Yeah, I do want to also note, just to give some props to Nikki Haley, she is the 12th woman ever to participate in a presidential debate in the more than 200 years of presidential politics. She's only the third Republican woman to ever do so and obviously is the only woman in the GOP presidential primary field and also the first Republican woman of color to participate in a presidential debate. So anyway, I just I hope we see more of her or it and or women like her joining I think she the made Republican some, field. I think she made part of these, the whole reason to have these debates is suss out differences among candidates. And I thought she had some useful contributions on, on a number of these debate, uh, uh, a number of these conversations, including probably most not notably abortion rights. And she was the one who I think, I mean, to me was expressing the, the, the sort of reality check for Republicans on this issue, which is that in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade, the party's position is just not very popular on it. And so she's trying to find this middle ground on the issue, or at least middle ground that would be acceptable to Republicans, which of course wouldn't be acceptable to Democrats. But, but she offered, I thought, basically the most realistic assessment of where the party is on that issue 
that may not necessarily win her win her plaudits or votes or anything like that. But there again, there were some interesting and useful discussions about differences among candidates, and, and that was one of the issues that was that that stood out in that way. And there were some disagreements on that, some support for it, it kind of seemed like Mike Pence and a candidate we haven't mentioned yet, Tim Scott were the most outwardly supportive of trying to do something federally about about curtailing abortion rights. I thought there's been some buzz about Scott lately. He's a favorite of the donor class. I, he was, I thought he was fairly invisible during this debate. Again, it's just my sort of sense of it, but he didn't really stand out. And I thought, I thought he kind of needed that to kind of keep some momentum going because there's been some, a little bit of positive polling signs for him, but you just wonder how much growth potential there actually is. And he also kind of, he kind of sounded like Pence too, in that is a, they're kind of channeling Reagan. And again, I just don't necessarily think, know if that's where the party is right now. Yeah. On that question specifically related to abortion, which came up at the debate, Nikki Haley very specifically pointed out that the next president is not really going to be able to do anything either way on the issue. And she was really the only one to do so. It was interesting to me also that Governor DeSantis's point around that issue was pretty much, we just have to leave it to the states. And he didn't really make much about what he did in Florida. He actually, to me, seemed to de-emphasize the ban he signed in Florida. Yeah, um, he, he did not explicitly say that he would not pursue federal legislation about abortion rights, but he kind of indirectly suggested that was not his focus, that he, was, yeah. that he, that he wouldn't want to do that. So again, there's a legitimate difference amongst these candidates as to what they would want to do. And, to, and, and of course, to, your, to, to the point you just made, Nikki Haley made the, 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 the sort of obvious point that th- doesn't often get mentioned in debates, which is when people are parties are talking about their laundry list of things they want to do, that there are legislative realities, including the filibuster in the Senate, that prevents a lot of these things from happening. Now, again, maybe the filibuster gets eliminated at some point. Maybe that opens up the possibility for action down the road on, on, on abortion rights or other things. But as, we, as it is right now, you, you can't really imagine a federal abortion rights bill passing just because you're not going to get 60 votes on either side for it. You know, I think it's also helpful to point out that in that new CBS poll of Republican primary voters that plans to stop abortion ranked the lowest in importance of any policy goal asked about. So it, it, it is, yes, an important issue. But I think to your point earlier about Mike Pence looking to the party of the past, this is it, it is th- that issue appeals to a small core of primarily evangelical voters and more traditionally socially conservative voters and not to, it is not the most relevant issue to the entire party. Yeah, I think that it seems like the sort of most engaged people on the abortion rights issue now are not people on the left. I think that's what happens when you're dealt a defeat, which for the left, the the Dobbs decision certainly was. But now we've had, we've been, colleague Miles Coleman has been looking at this in the crystal ball about what's happened in these various statewide ballot issues about about reproductive rights and other sort of associated issues. And the sort of Democratic position on that has really run ahead of, of how Democratic candidates have done in all the states that we've looked at so far. And so that's a that, that should continue. Now, again, not every state is going to have a statewide ballot issue about this, about, about this, but it seems like, that, again, the sort of the stated goal for Republicans is return this issue to the states and in the states where the people can vote on it. They're more opting toward the Democratic position than the Republican. So being at an institution of higher education and being learning-centered ourselves, I was really happy to see that Fox News brought in a student to ask a question. 
and it was a great question about climate change. Ramaswamy received a really large round of booing. Uh, I think it was the only time he was booed on stage with his question of just completely answering the question in just in terms of complete climate denial. I I thought it was also an interesting question because it revealed differences here among the party, um, both among the candidates, but also among the base. And I think there's some generational divisions. Overall, um, younger adults, those that are younger than 40, really do say that climate change is an extremely or very serious problem and want to see it addressed. And I do think a number of the candidates realized that and addressed it. I also watched the interview, Tucker Carlson's interview of Donald Trump, and they did not address climate change, broadly speaking, but a specific policy related to climate change. Trump in that interview went after attacking electric vehicles. The Biden administration has, of course, revealed a a, a whole range of measures attempting to increase electric vehicle adoption. That includes tax credits and emissions limits for car manufacturers. Uh, But overall, more than half of adults, according to Pew, don't consider it likely that they might purchase an electric vehicle. So an interesting display in terms of we saw Trump distancing himself, attacking the Biden administration on this specific climate-related issue, and then also some difference among the candidates at the GOP debate on climate change. Look, it's just a basic difference between the two parties is that the, the Democrats want the strong federal action about climate change and Republicans, broadly speaking, don't. I, it is interesting. We do have a number of those candidates are from two candidates from South Carolina and well, actually two candidates from Florida, too, if you count Trump as being from Florida, where he lives now. But those are states where climate change is potentially a maybe more so of a threat than in the interior of the country. But it's just again, it's just not really where the, the party is in terms of uh pursuing the kind of actions that the Democrats have wanted to do on it. And, and so whatever differences there are within the party, they're just not, that's just not something that they're, that I think they really believe in terms of a, in terms of federal action. And Ramaswamy was most kind of aggressively the anti-climate or the sort of anti-action on climate change, but also exalting coal, which coal is important, but it also, is it something to be exalted? Again, reasonable people can disagree on that, but, but it, it was almost like he was, I think there's, it can be kind of natural in politics to take whatever position the other side has to aggressively take the sort of contrarian position to it. And Ramaswamy, by talking about how great coal was, seemed like the ultimate expression of that, trying to compare himself to Democrats and being maximally different. Fox News has gotten some sort of, has gotten a little bit of criticism for trying to be, to play into to what's popular by playing that song. So Richmond, North of Richmond is a song that quickly jumped on the charts. I think it was number one on Apple charts last week, and it topped the Billboard 100 almost overnight. And Fox News started the debate with the song, which is by Oliver Anthony, who is from Goochland, which is between us here in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Richmond, Virginia. The song, to me, again, it's a populist. It plays into a lot of the sentiments we're seeing within the Republican Party around populism, around grievance, and the needs to address those who are in the working class. And the it, it speaks to the struggles of economic inequality and social inequality. But the song also promotes and shares conspiracy theories, and we've seen conspiracy theorists Matt Walsh, who is a far-right commentator who has fanned an anti-LGBTQ sentiment, 
share it to a hundred, excuse me, to a million views on his ex account, as well as Jack Posobiec, who's a right wing activist who promoted the false Pizzagate conspiracy theory, shared it on his ex account to more than five million views. There's a specific line in the song that says, I wish politicians would look out for minors, M-I-N-E-R-S, and not just minors on an island somewhere, M-I-N-O-R-S. That lyric is specifically the one that has raised, re-raised a conspiracy theory about Jeffrey Epstein's death. So Epstein died in jail in 2019, but the circumstances around his death have fueled conspiratorial thinking. And I raise that because this was actually discussed. Jeffrey Epstein's death was raised in by Tucker Carlson in his simultaneous interview with Donald Trump. The, all the buzz about this song, I think it basically, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that kind of like the left dominates culture to, in a lot of ways, music and movies, TV and that sort of thing. And certainly conservatives kind of feel that way too. I think that's part of this sort of feeling amongst people on the right that there's on de- defense and cultural issues. And so when there's something that comes out that's basically expresses conservatism in song or movie or whatever, I think it's pretty common for the right to rally around that. I think that's what we saw with this with this song. I did think it was interesting that Fox led with it so, so strongly, although it has been sort of part of the kind of national political conversation over the past the past couple of weeks. I'm I'm a big country music fan myself, <laughs> although most of it is like things that were recorded before 1980. So Maybe I can't really say anything of of use here, but the song is what it is. Look, I have listened to the song repeatedly, in part because I like bluegrass music, (laughs) in part because I think it's important for us to understand this perspective if we're really going to try to be responsive to needs of the public. Yeah, and look, I think he, again, he does express in the song this kind of like populist conservatism, which frankly is what animates the party these days. That's kind of what we've been talking about. And so maybe I think it's fitting maybe that, that that was a focus. Well, Kyle, good talk. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, here's the thing. Like, in the grand scheme of things, like, I we've watched these debates over the years. They've become such a big part of their presidential nominating process. I've probably watched, I think I've watched every presidential debate over the last 10 years, or at least going back to 2012 when I started doing this stuff, probably 2008 as well. And in, by some, this may be the one of the least consequential or least important debates ever because the guy who's likeliest to be the, the 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 nominee wasn't even there. And yet here we are, there really is a lot to talk about and digest with this debate about differences within the party and the evolution of the party. And so they are really interesting, I think interesting to watch and interesting to talk about, even though, again, the guy who's the likeliest to be the nominee wasn't even there. I don't know what it says about me, but I can, I've watched every debate since the 2000 election. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. And so, so, but they are some, and I think also the first one is usually is kind of always the most interesting because you, the ones that follow can tend to be repetitive of what happened. So it may yeah. be that when I think the next one is about a month from now, September 27th at the Reagan library, Trump has said he's not going to appear at these debates. We'll see if something changes, but maybe that's just, this was just the most interesting because it's the first look at all of them on the stage together or well all of them except for Trump and, and the other candidates who didn't make the cut. But it does tell you where the where, what's going on in the party and like what differences there are within the party. And so that's always interesting. Yeah. One, one final point. Many people are not yet tuning in to the presidential election. And I think I sometimes need to remember that because we are so tuned into it. 
And so this is really the start of a conversation. But I think, you know, what is really important about debates is that it is an opportunity, though not always taken, to really have national conversations about the important issues. And I think we need to lean into discussing the important issues and, and what we can do about them and moving beyond just tracking where the candidates are and what percentage they're getting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.